Well, welcome back, our friends and friends, uh, to a, yet another version of uh, No Filter Media, a fun-filled podcast where we get to talk to some interesting people from around the country about just about any subject that we damn well please. That's exactly the way we like it. We get to pick the subject, so we get to ask questions and get the answers. But we do it because we want you to have a well-rounded experience and hear some things that you might not ordinarily might not ordinarily hear. So I'm Sly James. I'm uh, uh, the co-founder of Wickham James Strategies and Solutions. I am the author of a couple of books, uh, a a Marine, a a lawyer in transition and uh, in recovery, and uh, a grandfather (laughs) of great kids and uh, just an all-around swell guy, former mayor of Kansas City, Missouri. Joni? He is a swell guy. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, I'm Joni Wickham, co-founder of Wickham James Strategies and Solutions, author of the best-selling book, The Thin Line Between Cupcake and Bitch, which Sly and Fred, my husband, tell me that thin line's getting thinner and thinner. Uh, Sly's former chief of staff and current wrangler of a second grader and a couple of really cute and stinky fur babies. Uh, You can check out our firm's website at WickhamJames.com to see how we can serve you and to book us for speaking engagements. And I am super excited about our guest today. Love him to pieces. I'm going to let Sly do the intro. Fantastic. But before I do it, you know, Johnny, you don't know anything about baseball, but George does. And George, you know what happens when a batter gets into a brand new batter's box and there's that line of white chalk outlined in the batter's box, particularly at the back end. First thing they do is they take their shoes and they wipe that line out, right? That's <laughs> right. What's Joni's done with me and Fred? <laughs> she says it's getting thinner and thinner. Hell, I'm waiting to see if it ever shows up again. It used to be there no more. She got rid of that line. That's right. Who needs it? <laughs> let, me, let me introduce you to a person that I not only respect in terms of what he does, but like as a human being. I, George Bersiaga is a, is a, is a man of, of uh, well, he's a real person. And that's, that's the first thing. Uh, one of my fondest memories was sitting around in D.C. smoking cigars and drinking whiskey with, uh, with uh, uh, the mayor of Denver at the time. Uh, I'll leave his name out of it in case he wants to. It's, he's still a witness. <laughs> um, but, and just talking big yang and smack. But the one thing that I remember from that was George told me what he was doing, him and his, in his organization, Ignite Cities. Uh, I can't wait for you to hear about his personal story and about what he's doing around the country. There are very few people that I've met that do things in government that do things in government because they need to be done. They don't do them because there's some way to get rich. They don't do them because there's some something in it for them personally. Uh, sure, they make a living, but they do things because they need to be done and they understand the value of delivering certain products and services to people around this country that they need. So with that being said, uh, I'm going to introduce you and say hi to George. George, what's going on, brother? Listen, first of all, Mayor, um, let me just say it's an honor um, to be here with you today. Joni, thank you. It's an honor to be with you. I'm humbled by the opportunity to be able to just to uh, spend a little bit more time and work with you guys with the amazing things you guys are doing across the country, all the amazing work you've done uh, in all of the jobs you've, you've held. It's just really humbling and there's a lot of gratitude here. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to be with you both today. Well, George, one of the things, let's start off with just the, the basics. And then I don't mean basics in terms of what you say, but basics in terms of building the story. You have an exceptionally interesting background. 
uh, how you grew up, how you became who you are and why you do what you do. Tell us a little bit about your life growing up and, and what that was like and what you've overcome. Absolutely. Um, so I'll jump right into it. Born and raised in one of our underserved communities in Chicago, and I should just give it to you unfiltered. I, I grew up in one of our poorest neighborhoods in Chicago, uh, raised by my grandparents, about 10 of us in a two-room uh, apartment, um, raised by the streets in a black and brown community, went to public schools and really respected the people around me. And I say that because too often you hear about how bad it is being poor. And I didn't know I was poor until someone told me I was. Because I felt loved by the streets, by the people, the community. I felt loved by being around so many people who were happy, even with nothing. With nothing. They still found a way to actually think about who they would become and what they would do and where they would go. And although there was drugs and violence and all of the things you would expect, it almost seemed normal. But this ability to kind of move it aside was this requirement I think a lot of us had in us growing up in that neighborhood where we knew we had to create some change. So I grew up underserved community, Chicago. The actual community is called Pilsen in Chicago, in the city of Chicago, in Chicago. A lot of people say they're from Chicago, but they're 40 miles out of Chicago. I grew up in Chicago, in Pilsen, in this amazing, uh, diverse community. And I say diverse because we were mixed. There were so many mixed relationships in this community that you really found everyone, found something good in everyone. So so that's where I grew up. Uh, I went to public schools. First one to graduate um, high school in my family to go to college. First one to graduate college and first one to open a business while I was in college. Um, and people always say you must have found something unique or someone should have must have helped you get to that point. And the truth was nobody helped. There was nothing unique. It was all based on necessity. <laughs> I really needed to change the cycle. There was a cycle of being poor that I recognized as a kid. There's a reason why poor people are poor. There's a reason why rich people are rich. There's a science to all of this to some extent. And I knew that there were some things I needed to personally change, although comfortable in my environment, although I felt like I understood why things were happening, I needed to create change. And I think I spent most of my young adult life identifying what that necessity was, what that change was, and what the cycle looked like on why I was poor. I mean, I literally have seen people shot in the street. I've um, worked since I was 13. Um, I've worked, I've done things to try to get myself through a neighborhood where things were so tough that you almost felt like there was nothing left. But somehow, God has always put something in front of me that has given me the ability to move forward. But necessity has always been the sort of driving factor. And of course, I got a strong belief in in God. So that's always uh, uh, given me the power to do what I needed to do. But so grew up in Chicago, underserved, raised by the streets pretty much, started my first company out of um, college. And and that's really sort of the, the, the course I took to get to starting and becoming an entrepreneur. Well, what was the what was the course with the company you started in college? What did they do? So the company I started in college was a BIOS correction software. So Y2K was around the corner. 
And I was literally living in that same community. I was working as an intern while going to school for a company called Nesbitt Burns. It was a security company owned by the Bank of Montreal. Back then, right around 97, 98, they were the largest bank in Canada, the Bank of, Mont bank of Montreal. And they had security firms across the country in the US. And here I am, this kid from Pilsen, going to school, this idea that I'm gonna take over the world because I have to, I have no choice at this point, it's necessity, literally. Like I was walking in the door telling people I was about to take over. Like I really felt like I was going to become somebody great. Not, again, you said this in the beginning, not for myself, but because I had nine other people living in a two bedroom apartment in one of the worst neighborhoods in Chicago, although I was comfortable, I wasn't a fool. Yeah. I, knew that, <laughs> I, I, I knew that I needed to really create some change and some difference. And it was funny because right around that time I met my wife and she was in school and she would hear me say these things and talk about these things. And in fact, even today, she would say, George, while we were in school and we would stay together, he said, I would go to sleep and you would be at your desk. And when I would wake up, you'd still be at your desk working. And that was that determination and that fire and that hunger that said, you know what? I'm going to create a, I'm going to create the change that's required. Now, keep in mind, I had no support. I had, when I say support, I had no financial support. I had no father to lean on to kind of guide me. I had no one to tell me to go to school. If I didn't show up for school, if I didn't go to school, if I didn't find a school to go to, no one would have, would have known. The idea was that I really had no safety net. And my wife would say, why, why are you, why are you like, well, she was in school. She was absolutely going somewhere. And I was this kid that came out of nowhere. And she would say, why are you working so like hard? Like, why don't you take a break? But I knew I had no time for a break. I knew that any, by momentum can change at a drop of a dime. The ability, you can be on top today and then at the bottom tomorrow. And that happens instantaneously. And I was so worried about losing that little edge that I had. I was in school. I had a job. You asked me what company it was. It was Nesbitt Burns. And when I created this software, I remember walking into my boss's office. His name was Ian Thompson. This was over 25 years ago. His name was Ian Thompson. And he said, um, I said, I have a new idea for you. I'm going to take over. I'm going to do all these great things. I'm going to drop in this BIOS correction software. It's going to fix all your problems for Y2K. And I said, but the only way I'm going to do that is if you hire me and the software I'm building to do it. He said, well, do you have the software? I said, I don't have it yet. I'm going to have it. And he was like, so you want me to hire you for a job that you don't even have the tools to do the work yet? I said, if you have faith in allowing me the opportunity and not just one chance, I'm not going to let you down. And I've always had this belief and you'll, and you and Joni will, will understand why. And you were a Marine. So you know how much loyalty means walking the door, how you have to trust someone. My dad was a Marine as well. My brothers were Marines. And I knew that if he gave me an opportunity, I was going to get hit by a bus, get up and get hit again. I was not going to let him down. I was not going to fail. So for me back then, failure was not an option. Today, if you ask me that question, failure is a part of success. There's this change that occurred. I had no chance to lose back then because I did not want to fall back into that two-bedroom apartment in the, in the hood. I needed to really find a way out. So failure was not an option. I had to win. He gave me a shot. The company was acquired by a very large technology firm with 18 months later. And within two years, I was out with a big check. 
and I was 21 years old. And I said, okay, um, anything is possible. Um, and I, and, and I walked away knowing that. So then I started that next company and my wife said, okay, and I opened a coffee shop with her and was in the same neighborhood that I grew up in. I put something in there to change the way people learn. It was an internet cafe called Cafe Soul that was getting free internet to the community in a place. I was 22 years old and I had this coffee shop with these Apple computers and it was free internet for everyone. It was the internet that used to make that funny sound too. You know, that, yeah. that little, yeah, I remember that back in the day. So, so <laughs> it wasn't, it, it wasn't super high tech yet. So this was me giving back. Um, we were giving food out to families. We were having art shows. This is before it was cool. This is a long time ago. I'm in my mid forties. This was when I was 22. So this was a long time. And then it was in the neighborhood. So it wasn't even in like a trendy artsy neighborhood. No, I put it in the hood because I really wanted to uh, show other families that if you rethought, if you could reimagine what was possible, things could, things could happen. You know, you could actually change the cycle. You could actually think bigger. And I learned even back then, you don't know what you don't know, right? So I don't care how smart you are. If you don't know about everything else, you, you just don't know about it. I, we can't have that conversation. So I needed to get other people engaged in a conversation in an area that they were unfamiliar so they could challenge everyone, they could think bigger, they could actually want more. You had to want more. Um, and that was the idea. Fantastic. So there's so much about this that I want to pick apart. Before we get to the actual business stuff and your company that you work with today at Night Cities, which there's a lot to talk about there, tell me something, George. Where does this drive come from? You told us that you didn't have any support, financial support or uh, family support. Where does that drive come from then? Yeah, so the drive, I, I always, I believe this and I, I'm only to give my opinion, so I don't want to ruffle any feathers. But I believe you either have it in your DNA or you don't. And I don't think it's something you can teach someone. Um, and I say that because I think we have a lot of what we'll call more entrepreneurs, folks that uh, work for a company, have a lot of the same values, but just don't want to sort of jump off the cliff. They, they, they want to do everything the right way. They're amazing individuals who are strong and you can't run a business without them. So it's an equal part to what you have to do. Um, and then you have... Uh, the entrepreneur who actually is okay taking the risk, okay jumping off the cliff, okay with the stomach aches and the cold sweats and how am I going to make payroll? I, I, I didn't mind those. I had them frequently. You know, the last company, I, uh, Elevate Digital, I raised $28 million in a short amount of time and then sold it for a lot of money. But the idea was even while we were raising money, even while we were building and all of those fears. There are fears. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, we're there. Um, I was okay based on knowing that I was creating change. So I, to answer your question very directly, I think it came from just in my DNA, having the feeling and ability and wanting based on necessity to create change. Not for me. This is, this is the, probably the answer you need. I wanted to create change for somebody else. And that was, if I was going to answer this, this is what I, if you ask me a question, I'm going to give you the answer. I was doing it for someone else. I was doing it for my wife. I was doing it for my kids. I was doing it for my grandparents. I was doing it 
for somebody else all the time. And you just actually asking me that helped me realize that answer because I didn't have it before. But I'll tell you why. I've told people before, if I die tomorrow, I'm okay because I changed the cycle. My kids are in a different place. And I know that from now on, things are going to be safe. And I knew that I had to make a change in order to create a safe place for family to be because we weren't before and there was no one else to do it. So I would answer it by saying, I did it for someone else. And that is done now. And I know that I'm able to move forward. And it wasn't just money. It was mindset, culture. It was taking mindset and making sure people knew how to live differently moving forward. Because you can do that without money. I just been, I was fortunate enough to make some money to do that and create mindset because I think the gratitude I had for what we were doing was much bigger. Um, I'll tell you one other thing, and this wasn't just today because I mentioned my kids, but I will tell you this. When I was in the middle of starting one of my bigger tech firms, I was taking care of my grandparents. I told you I lived with them. After the first check, I bought a house and I got married. I didn't buy a single family home. Um, excuse me. Yeah, I didn't buy a single family home. I bought a two flat. And my goal was to take my grandparents with me. And my wife, I felt, I felt bad because I was buying a house. I was getting married, but I was putting her in a house with my grandparents. Because, you know, you, you think you're supposed to get the white picket fence. But my feeling of responsibility and loyalty to them was much greater than anything else. I had to be able to say, I'm doing what I'm doing for you and I'm taking you with me. The unfortunate part is my grandmother was blind. She had diabetes. She passed away before I was able to get married and move her into this house, which was probably the biggest hurt and failure for me that everything I was doing, the, the hard work I was putting into it, because you asked why I was doing it. Right. I was doing it for someone else. I, was, I used to have talks with her. Mom, I'm gonna take you, I'm gonna get you a new house, because we lived in the hood. So I'm, I'm going to take you to a new place. I'm going to have something nice for you and have your own place, all these great things. You're finally going to own your own place. It's going to be amazing. She couldn't see, but I was visually explaining to her what we were doing. And she passed away the month before we moved and I got married, which was heartbreaking for me because it was the biggest failure I had in not actually succeeding. So I think that feeling of failure has always been with me to make sure I don't fail someone else. And I think like with my kids, I mentioned, I've always been doing this for someone else. More than likely, that's probably been the biggest driving factor. I gave you a long answer just to tell you, it's been for someone else and that's been my motivating factor. George, I've got a song for you and you need to write this down and remember it because I think it's perfect for exactly what you just said. It's by the Nimmo Brothers, N-I-M-M-O. I believe they're a Scottish blues band, but they don't sound Scottish, brother. And the song is, I Do It All For You. Check it out. We'll talk about it the next time we talk so that you can, I want you to hear it because it's a great song, one of my favorites. And I think that you would identify with it, uh, the lyrics in that song. I wrote it down. Fantastic, brother. Perfect. Well, you know... <laughs> You have been this this person that has been goal-oriented, achievement-oriented, entrepreneurial, um, serial entrepreneur, I might add. 
And frankly, no serial entrepreneur does everything without failure, without some failure along the way. There's some, something that didn't work right. But yeah, right, right now you're, you're running the Ignite Cities. Why don't you tell everybody what Ignite Cities is, what you do, and some things that you're really proud of about what Ignite Cities does. Absolutely. So Ignite Cities is a consulting practice that we started almost three years ago. And the practice was built around working directly with mayors and advising them on how to resolve human-based issues at an accelerated pace. And I say human-based issues, as you can tell, even from my childhood, everything's been about people. So I knew that if we were going to fix something, we really had to put people first. We had to put them at the center of why we were doing it. So we don't promise to fix everything with all of the mayors we work with, as you know. We actually focus on a couple of main pressure points, weaknesses that we see either the mayor's dealing with, the city's dealing with, or people are dealing with. And I'll give you an example. It could be homelessness or municipal broadband, or even today with COVID, the idea of delivering cash assistance to families that are either underbanked, unbanked, undocumented. So we find those weaknesses that are wrapped around people. We work directly with the mayor in identifying how to resolve when we bring the smartest companies in the world to the table. We stand up an, uh, an offering that actually resolves it, that builds me- measurement and metrics that we can actually measure. And then we show it to the, to the city, to the mayor, to the team, so that way they can actually absorb that and apply it. And it's up to them at what scale. I should also mention everything we do is pro bono. So there is no cost to any of the cities that we work with in any of the work we're doing because it is people focused. It is strictly around resolving issues. And then we hand over how, you know, the offering itself and and how it resolves these problems. And we allow the city to apply them, whether it's through whatever process, sole source, RFP, whatever it is. We're technology focused. We're tech vendor agnostic. So it's not like you got to use this one or that one. We're really focused on resolving the issues. Some great projects that have just launched that are large, but really provide impact. I'll give you a great example. We've worked closely with Mayor Garcetti and his team, Deputy Mayor Gene Holmes and Commissioner uh, Miguel Singeling. And they came and said, I need to be able to get cash into residents' hands who weren't able to be uh, to util- who weren't able to utilize federal assistance, whether through whatever, what, whatever process it was, they were undocumented or unbanked, and they just were overlooked. And, and the unfortunate part during COVID, as you know, as you both know, our underserved families have taken the largest hit in separation from technology, funding, you name it, um, jobs, education. So the, the, the ask was, help us put money in people's hands. So we partnered with MasterCard and Mochafy, two amazing companies who came up with an offering that said we could put together a smart card that would allow us to distribute across these cards to residents, whether they were under uh, banked, unbanked or undocumented, doesn't matter. There's a simple process to get them on board and we could deliver cash through it and ensure that they get the right assistance the right financial literacy training and all the tools required to get, not only get them cash, but also move them into a digital economy, help them participate and shop locally, help us build economic development across our underserved communities. There were so many triggers that happened from these offering we brought to the table that it made sense. They call it the Angelino card. It went from 10,000 people in a short amount of time. When I say short, we stood up the offering in 30 days. It Dang. was distributed to over 30,000 people in 60 days. 
you know, by the 90th day, over 70,000 people had cards. Today, over 120,000 people have. It's only been six months. Um, and now it's a citywide card. And by this time next year, we estimate there'll be over a million people with the card. And it's, it's become a full access city card called the Angelino Connect card that allows will give you access not only to city services and discounts and rewards, but also access to the zoo, the parks, transportation. So it really becomes a single card that everybody can use. It doesn't call out poor people or rich people. It says, if you live in the city, you should have a card. You can connect it to your bank account. If you don't have a bank account, you now qualify for one because MasterCard's connected to this, Mocafi's connected to this, and now you're able to go get a bank account with this ID and this card and actually start utilizing those banking services. So changes the mindset, allow, delivers an offering that supports people first. Um, and this all came from about how do we help those who are disconnected financially? And it's now expanded to Honolulu, Miami, Newark, New Orleans. So we've, again, I think the best part of what we do is not only do we get to work with mayors and cities to help them rethink how to resolve things, we find an answer. And because we're connected to so many mayors, when we stand something up like in LA, we're able to scale it across cities fast and replicate the same results because we've already built it. And that's why we look at one or two problems to resolve opposed to telling a mayor, we can fix everything. We can't fix everything. We really right. want to be specialists in two or three places that we provide 150% of effort and, and, and to resolve things opposed to spreading ourselves out too thin. Makes so, sense. Yeah, that does make sense. And I love how this whole um, servant leadership worldview that you've always had, even when you were telling us about your personal journey when you were 22, about helping people. You're keeping people at the center of this new uh, smart city trend. Um, and I think you've really uh, explained to our listeners what you mean by that and why it's important. So I would love for you um, to talk a little bit about adaptability. Um, I actually uh, did my research uh, before this, and you've written a lot about how important the ability to adapt is for individuals and for cities. What lessons have you learned either through Ignite Cities or other endeavors about how technology can help us adapt? Yeah, first of all, thank you for, for looking into that. I have written a lot. Um, about a lot of things and they all kind of come back to that sort of one place. Um, and I think even my position, my being uh, has, um, has been, has really leaned on adapting to just about everything. I think if you don't uh, adapt and evolve, you get left behind real quick. And I think that's part of the cycle of being poor. Um, you have to adapt and evolve. And what happens if you don't offer someone the ability to adapt or evolve, they get, be left, they get left behind. So when we think about, I'll give you a good example. When we think about, we hear a lot. Oh, let's put, uh, let's give everyone, let's make internet access affordable. Okay. So it's not just affordable. It has to be accessible. And what does affordable mean to you or to me or someone else may have nothing. So affordable, the, the value of affordable is different based on who you are, right? So the idea would be that we have to be able to allow everyone to adapt which means we have to really level the playing field. So I think if we're gonna allow our cities and our communities and people to adapt, 
we really have to equalize and balance. And I think that's, that's our biggest issue. So I've, I've always focused, even when things have been difficult, focused on trying to figure out a way to adapt if we don't. And even with my kids, I always work towards identifying ways to listen in and adapt, you know, pay attention in that. Uh, a lot of times, even without the resources, we can still adapt. What we With adapting, we have to evolve. As humans, we naturally progress. And, and what happens is either we move in one direction or the other, the idea is to move in a direction that shows a positive change. So I think evolving and adapting is a key to success in general, a healthy life, um, a successful company, um, um, you know, building your education. And I think without evolving and adapting, we just get left behind. And that's, that is definitely an area that I even uh, focus on with my kids. With that, I always say that either you're prepared or you're not. Um, so while you're evolving and adapting, a lot of times you have to just be prepared. And if we're not, you know, we tend to get left behind real quick. And it happens, unfortunately, to a lot of our underserved communities because we just don't have the resources to evolve and adapt, right? So we're we're just we're in a vulnerable position, um, point blank. And and the idea is then you're asked to, you know, why aren't you moving as fast as everyone else? Well, the truth is I, I'm not in a position, nor do I have the tools to be competitive. So it's my adapting is, is, you know, I believe for those who are in uh, less fortunate positions, evolving and adapting is a requirement. And if we don't get real good at it early, we, you know, we're in trouble. So I, I think it's a key requirement for anyone uh, in life, but also more importantly, those who are uh, dealing with uh, less, you know, fortunate situations. You, you know, George, uh, two things. First, uh, for people listening to this podcast, they can't see what we can see. And I just wanted to tell you that um, it is not necessary for you to immortalize the one time that you challenged me to a boxing match in the ring by putting up that picture of me standing over your body back there. <laughs> okay? I, I, mean, I, I didn't think you'd recognize yourself. Well, there's only one of us black and the other's laying on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, l- listen, I think I think um, Ali, the picture of Ali behind me, rapper, is a good. It's it's actually so I'm sitting in a, an area right as you walk in my home, and it's because it's a it's a motivational focus for me when I walk in and I walk out, um, and I tell my kids all the time that you know we have to be prepared to really um, live the best life we can, and 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 that's what I see when I walk in. That's what yeah. I see when I leave. And, you know, he's a great um, inspiration. Talk about adaptable. Talk about adaptable. Talk, or, or here, and not only adaptable, talk about someone who is persistent in any belief and the idea that change is required. I mean, if you think about a person who is focused, Ali, you know, being focused on change, when the whole world said, you know, go left, he said, I'm going right and wasn't going to change. You know, the the position on civil rights when it wasn't cool, it's never been cool. But, you know, for him to stand up in front of the world, talk about someone who said, I'm going to break a cycle regardless if you're with me or not. And stand yeah. strong is really the, the big I mean, he's on my he's on my laptop. You know, he's on um, a sweater I wear around the house equally. And it's because I really do automatically connect with the idea of loyalty and standing up when no one else is, when everyone else is sitting down, the idea that you have the ability, every human has the ability to stand up 
and we see that representation occasionally throughout our life, um, I like to be reminded of it. And he's he's one of that reminds me of it. You know, when you were talking about the cards, you know, something that flashed through my mind and I don't know whether or not it's technically possible. And I'm sure that the states probably would not would do everything they could to make it impossible. But it'd be great to proliferate those cards, but also to proliferate them in a way that they actually were ID for voting purposes, since there's so much of an emphasis to stop black and brown people from voting. Um, You know, this is a way that you could kill a lot of birds with one stone. But that's a technical situation and probably one that's unwieldy because of changes from state to state and all the weird things they do. But the cards, I think, were an ingenious thing to do. Um, You know, we, we talk, you and I have talked over time about smart cities. And smart city is a term that's become somewhat ubiquitous and means different things to different people. But when I first learned about smart cities, we talked, it was about tech. It was about how to utilize tech in such a way that you could make delivery of city services more efficient, the collection of data and the use of data more efficient, uh, ways to gather information in a passive or active way uh, and turn that information into action points for citizens and cities. What's going on with you in smart cities and how do you find smart cities? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You're actually right. You know, over the last 15 years, people have thrown around the word smart cities um, and it means different things to different folks. The good news is it's all positive, right? Everyone is hoping that it actually commits to some positive change. At Ignite, we recognize that there's a few things that have to happen. One, anything that any city that will be smart has to ensure that whatever they're doing actually works for everybody. So th- so that's the first thing. So again, I kind of come back to that people-focused position that whatever we do, it's not just putting um, smart lights in that uh, lower the bill for the city, but it's putting smart lights in that actually hear a gunshot, dispatch police, tell the bus to stop moving in that direction, and tell that mom and three kids that are there to move away from that area because something's wrong. So the idea is that if we deliver an offering it has to build efficiencies and sustainability and safety that actually start to change the way every person lives. And I think whatever technology, whatever data platform, whatever anyone is thinking that can provide efficiency and sustainability is absolutely uh, an, a, a product that should be moved to the front. The key thing to do is not to forget that it has to actually help everybody. So I think you can't build a smart city if it doesn't actually support everybody. So, so that's, what I, that's what I'll say. If anyone is building something, just make sure that whatever it is, it actually touches everybody and the efficiency actually is applied to every family. And that's the harder thing to do because yeah. it's, it's yeah. easier to do things in silos. It's easier to do things... Um, in one-offs. It's easier to buy stuff for areas that will produce revenue, but it's harder to actually stand up technologies that change the way the, the tougher areas work. But if you balance out a product that actually provides efficiencies and sustainability across the entire city, the mandate is the entire city, you start to provide a balance of offerings and services that every family. Now with that, the second part of becoming smart is there's an educational component. So it's not just hardware and software, but there's a literacy part. There's a training part. There's a piece that says that I have to be able to apply uh, information that helps our families change mindset, 
and how they actually use some of these services. So I know it was a, a long answer, but I think any technology that actually works for everybody is the first place you have to start. Yeah, no, I think it's a great answer. And um, some of the other uh, articles that you've written talk about how technology can be the ultimate equalizer, um, but it's not going to be the ultimate equalizer if it's only a tool for white guys in skinny jeans, right? There you go. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's a can we can we get a few of those? Can we get a few women in those skinny jeans too? <laughs> White guys and, and, and some women in some skinny jeans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so through all this excellent work that you're doing um, at at Nike Cities, what would you say, George, um, are some of your proudest accomplishments so far? You know, I always I always revert back. Um, there's there's a lot of um, big things. There's a lot of big things done. But I'm just really, really happy that when my kids talk about what I do, they say he works with mayors and cities to actually put technology, put technology in to help families uh, that, are, that are disadvantaged. Like they know that the end result here, the time I'm spending is really to ensure that families across the world have the ability to see that there's a different way to live and there's an opportunity to change mindset, behavior, culture, to support a different framework and really a different direction to improve where you live, who you live, and who you'll be. I love knowing that my big, my biggest accomplishment are those kids, are my kids. You know, they're, you know, I, so I could point to a project, but I'm going to point to the bedroom across the hall because... Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> the, kids, the kids across the hall. Oh, okay. okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point to the kids because, um, you know, I really, really believe that what, what I've done changes the way they view the world and, um, and the way they view their dad. My legacy has to be the, what they talk about, what they say about me when I'm gone. And that's really the focus here. The focus is really what are they going to say about me when I'm not here? And, they, you know, I, they're always yelling at me when I'm here. Um, I'm hoping they say a few nice things when I'm not here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but that's you know, my, my biggest accomplishment is them. From a technology perspective, um, the fact that we have the, this, this ability to work with so many great mayors. I mean, there's so many, you know, a lot of people and mayor, you know this, it's overlooked the amount of effort and sweat, blood and tears that go into what a mayor does. And we see a lot of that, the stress, the, you know, being in the trenches with families. And when something goes wrong, they're the first ones that get the blame, right? So we are in a really great position to work with so many great people, friends of ours. You know, I just got off of our roundtable event and, you know, Mayor Benjamin, who was hosting it with a few other mayors, said, when I met George, the, what got us connected was the fact that he was talking about changing the way our underserved communities live by our, under, our underserved communities live by humanizing the technology so it actually connects to them. He said that that was six years ago, seven years ago, and he remembered it. So the fact that he's able to remember when we first met and the conversation we had says something truly, you know, says something truly important about him as a human being. And those are the types of mayors that we've been able to work with. Mayors like that and, and Mayor Hancock and Mayor Bottoms and Mayor Cantrell, mayors, Mayor Suarez, who actually care about me, care about the people that live there, care about their families. And that's been really, really important for us in what we do.
Amen. Amen. Well, I'll tell you, George, um, it's an honor. And it is seldom that you run across somebody who has such great ideas and such pure motives. Um, those combinations don't generally fall in the same lap or the and, same head. And, and P.S., when you're ready to run for office, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> I'm sure Mayor Sly James will tell me, will give me the, uh, the advice not to do that right now. Uh, it's probably a tough time, and, and uh, I probably could do a lot more around the world if I'm out and about. Yeah, that's kind of our thought. I hear you. Yeah. You don't have to be in office to do good work for people. Right. But, but or I have be to a tell leader. you, Joni, I have to tell you, it is one of my dreams to be able to be a mayor. I mean, someone asked me the other day, I was on a call and they said, uh, what's one of your dream jobs? And I answered, I said, to be a mayor. Um, I'm just afraid to do it because, again, that failure part, if I lose, uh, I'll be devastated. I'll never be able to live with myself. So I, I was like, uh, I'm going to pass that one for right now. Well, I'll tell you what, if you're if you're looking to have an impact on people in your community, that is the political job to have. Uh, I, I know people in Congress, in the Senate, and they'll tell you, and if they were mayors, they'll tell you the best job they had was when they were mayor. 100%. Yeah. Mayor, I hear all the time from mayors that, you know, that, you know what, it was an incredible opportunity to create change. And even with the, the hard times that you go through, the feeling of accomplishment has to be incredible. Yeah. And the accountability, because you see your people every single day, every single place. You can't run from them. You can't go spend six, eight, 10 months in D.C. and act like that's the world. You're right here with them. You're suffering with them. You're living with them. You're eating with them. They are your people. You will work your butt off for them. Like I said, all that I do for you. There you go. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for everything you've done. I mean, I mean, you've done so many amazing things. Well, I will tell you straight up, George, that and, and I've had this conversation with the young lady, Miss Wickham, but those things would not have been possible without her. Um, and she haunts up with other incredible people. But uh, the partnership I have with her is absolutely profound in terms of how we were able to move, maneuver and get things done. Couldn't have done it without her. Wouldn't have wanted to do it without there her. There you go. Okay. Well. Well, well, thank you both for everything you, you've done. And thank you for allowing me to participate on this podcast. No, thank, thank you, you for George. spending time with us, George. We appreciate it. And we're looking forward to seeing you some more. And I think I'll just text you. I'll try to text you that song so you don't have to look it up. All right. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to hear it. All right, bro. All right. Take care, George. All right. See you guys later.